All right. Um, let me just tie in a little bit of what we studied from last week to the age here of Christian empire. Okay. And I use that term very loosely. Um, Because it was an empire, but I don't know that it was Christian. Um, So let me just segue, okay? Let me digress just a little bit. So last week, we did go through the age of Catholic uh, Christianity. I I want to redefine those terms, okay? Catholic uh, was not what you would uh, describe today as being what you know if you walked into a Saturday evening Catholic service, Okay. It was Catholic, which means universal, right? You remember this? It was really derived from Christ's great commission to the disciples to go to the end of the earth, right? To go to the ends of the earth and preach and make disciples of all men, baptizing in the name of, you know, of, of the Father. All right? And then, of, of course, we join in the Apostle Paul and his journeys and what we know as the orthodox teaching or the correct or accepted teaching of Christ in what would call like his seminary, his ministry on earth, all right? And, and we know from the book of John and other gospels that uh, Christ taught the disciples all things. So let me, let me tie in, okay? In every age, in every age, even today, no exception, God has raised up godly men or, and women, Godly individuals to preserve true teaching, okay? There's no exception in every age. And so one of the things that happened between uh, Roman Catholicism, the, the last weeks that I taught is we, he raised up men like Clement um, and raised up men like Origen. Now, what's interesting, and we had this discussion a little bit, I shared this in our elder meeting here this morning, is they had their faults. They had their faults. But as was pointed out, what about Solomon? What about David, a God, a God after man, or a man after God's own heart who had multiple wives, who you know, as a conspirator of murder and so forth. So I just want to point this out that even though man has been used in God's economy and in his master plan for throughout history, throughout time, every man is sinful. And so there's no exception then, today, tomorrow, it doesn't matter until, until the return, until the rapture. But let's, let's just tie this in a little bit. So you have a huge shift of, uh, in, in the previous age and an uh, expansion of Christianity, all right? And, but you have a, a huge shift in um, and a variety of attacks, heretical attacks on, um, on the true gospel, all right? It started in the last, the major attack in the last age that we studied was a, was a heretical teaching called Gnosticism. And then in this age, there's going to be multiple um, meetings, uh, some famous ones by church fathers to combat heretical attacks on the true gospel that were primarily centered around who is Jesus Christ? Is he man? Is he God? Is he both? How do we explain that away? 
Um, and so in the, current, in the age that we're going to study this morning, those are, the major, those are the major attacks. Those are the major things. Before we can get to Constantine and what he um, implemented in his empire um, and, and eventually even uh, his followers mandated that Christianity be the, the, uh, the religion of the empire, and I'll, I'll show you their decree. I actually uh, put it in your notes this morning. We got to study his predecessor. We got to look a little bit at a guy named Diocletian. All right? Um, and, and so let's get into the notes here. So the Emperor Constantine is one of the major figures of Christian history. And, and what he did for, for Christianity was important. I'm, I'm not, not going to deny that. Uh, but there are some major question marks. After his conversion, Christianity swiftly moved from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of palaces. The movement started the fourth century as a, as a persecuted minority, and it ended the century as an established religion of the empire. Thus, the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. To serve the government in the western half of the empire, even the, I'm sorry, monks arose to protest this secularization of faith, but when the barbarians shattered the government in the western half of the empire, even the Benedictines enlisted as mission, missionaries to the pagans. I think it's very interesting that throughout church history, Whenever church became too closely established to politics, there was a reaction by some to pull church out of politics. And now you see a reaction once church is pulled out of politics to reinstitute church and morality into politics. And it goes 100 years over here, and then it goes 150 years over here, and then it goes... 200 years over here, and then you get to where we are today, which is the longest English word in, the, in our language, anti-disestablishmentarianism, which is against the separation of church and state. So I just want you to see the, the pendulum swaying throughout history. And, and I want to also be clear that there is a right place for this to land. And we've been studying this now for uh, well over a year on the kingdom. And so where is it going to eventually land? You know the answer here. Blurt it out. Where is it going to end? Is it going to be a church-run, Christian-run state, or is it not? It is going to be. And it is going to be accomplished by the destruction of all what? All nations except for one, which is going to be what? Israel. Okay, so we know the end. We can, we can put our, our faith and trust in that very, very clearly, very, very, very sturdily, very steadfastly. And that way we can enjoy a little bit more studying fallen history. Okay? <clears throat> when you know the end, it kind of makes it more, more delightful. One of the men that God has used here is Eusebius. I, I shared about him last week, about that story. Um, where he, he recounts a letter, and I, again, this is not, we don't know for sure if this happened or not, but Eusebius was a personal historian. He was a believer. He was at least a professing believer. He was a personal historian <clears throat> to Constantine. And he wrote, uh, or he recounted the letter that a man in what is modern-day Turkey, and I put, the <clears throat> I put a map up here today that we'll get to, about a man, uh, actually a governor, 
who wrote a letter to Christ, who apparently this man was feeling ill and word had traveled even in the day of Christ at his ministry, which had traveled several hundred miles to, uh, to modern Turkey. And this man was like, all right, this, this is a man who might, or God, uh, Jesus, might be able to uh, fix his ailment. <clears throat> anyway, so that's Eusebius. Eusebius is a Christian historian and biographer of Constantine, and he documented the conversion of Constantine to Christianity and described his victory over his enemies as inspired by the Godhead and marked a turning point in Christian history. Uh, It's important to note that in Constantine's own mind and in his writings, he really saw his political mission as inspired by God, as being uh, sort of a missionary um, of God. Constantine represents the passing age of Catholic Christianity and the beginning of the age of Christian empire. Uh, This age spans from about 312 to 590. Some would extend it out to about 650. Um, I would not. I would end it right about here with a specific event that we'll talk about. Courageous martyrs were a thing of the past. The things that that we studied last week where Christians are drug into coliseums and, uh, and observed uh, to, you know, to fight against lions and burned. and I mean, it was just wicked what was done to them. That became a thing of the past. Um, that became outlawed. Uh, Christians were able to enjoy a relative uh, time of peace under Constantine and his rule. The Christianization of the empire and the imperial interference as the affairs of the church begins. We can detect the fallout, though, of these two developments to this very day. We have, we sit in a, in a state of religious and political turmoil that can be traced to this day. <clears throat> How could such a turn of events come about? This is what I want to try to answer this morning. How could we go from the persecution of Christianity under Roman rule, under the Caesars, to the very next age, the main ruler of the, of the age, the, the supreme ruler of the age, Constantine, now instituting Christianity as its formal religion. How do we get there? Why did the despised and persecuted superstition, as the Romans called it, <coughs> called Christianity, rather than suddenly arise from the shadows of Roman society and assume almost overnight, quite literally, almost overnight, the spiritual leadership of the vast and powerful empire? How do we get there? How do we get there in such a short time? Well, we've got to look at Diocletian. This guy is fun to study. Uh, He would not have been fun to live under as, as as a believer. The transition to a Christian empire began with Constantine's predecessor, Diocletian. This is so interesting to me. Occupied the Roman throne for about 20 years only, one of the shortest rulers of the time period really about 19 and a half, a son of slaves in Dalmatia, which we get Dalmatian hounds, you know, the spotted dog, all right? This is, this is the origin of those things, uh, which is modern Balkan Peninsula. So it's the area that we would uh, look at Croatia, uh, Slovakia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. It's the Balkan Peninsula that, is separates, that separates the Aegean and the Balkan Sea, and you can see it up there. Um, it's some famed, famed uh, regions of famous wars and all kinds of crazy stuff. Anyways, 
So he is the son of a slave family in Dalmatia. He embarks on a military career. That was his way out of slavery. Rising through the ranks to become a commander of the army before the age of 40. It sounds like a movie should be made of this guy. They have been. Raised to the throne by the election of generals and officers. So his own peers elect him to the throne. That wouldn't happen today, could it? He settled any possible competition to the throne on the day of his... You can't make this stuff up, guys. This is, this is great. So he settles the, any competition to the throne on the day of his tribunal. In other words, he's supposed to go before the Senate, be elected, installed. Uh, between, it's up between him and this other guy who I don't remember his name. No one would because of what Diocletian does here. He, Diocletian literally springs to the guy and stabs him, kills him in the tribunal. Kills his competitor. Well, who's left to take the throne, right? Diocletian. After assuming the throne, he was able to turn back the Roman retreat in Germany and along the Danube. This is where the, uh, where the Romans had failed and, and Diocletian is able to settle that area. He even reconquered most of what is distant Britain and Persia. And I want you to look at that map for a second. It's so far away that it doesn't even fit on this map. So at the time of Diocletian, all right, the empire is expanding. It's expanded beyond what even that red line shows. Diocletian's plan aimed to protect the empire from the anarchy created by the constant assassination of emperors. You know this. This is Roman history. Senate rules for a little while. They don't like the Caesar. They murder him. The Caesar, a new Caesar takes place. He kind of dissolves and takes over the Senate. And it was just a constant battle for a long, long time that really never ended. It never, you know, it never resolved itself until Rome, you know, dissolves. Diocletian solved that problem by seizing power. No one seems to know why, and this is an interesting part of his life, but two years after his role, or after his rule, so he's done ruling, so in about 307 AD, Diocletian suddenly orders the most vicious of all persecution of Christians. It was abhorrent. It's terrible. For about 18 years, this practicing pagan played no attention to growing Christian power even though his court was full of Christians. This is interesting. His personal advisors, even his own wife and his kids, were professing believers. Diocletian apparently didn't care. He went after Christians badly. So his wife, Prisha, his daughter, Valeria, were both considered Christians, but Diocletian ordered his army to purge out Christians. Imperial edicts followed, commanding officials to destroy church buildings, prohibit Christian worship, and burn scriptures. This is just before Constantine takes power, okay? Bishops are rounded up, they're imprisoned, they're tortured, many are put to death, while the power of the imperial throne was turned loose to wipe out the rest of Christian community in bold. This trend continued for about seven more years under Galerius. Galerius ruled for about seven years after Diocletian does the same policies. Finally, Constantine arises after Galerius. So Galerius dies, the struggle for imperial breaks loose, as it always does when one ruler dies. It's up for grabs. Constantine gets it. In the spring of 312, Constantine, a son of Constant, Constatius Chlorus, 
advanced across the Alps to capture Rome. Constantine saw his success to conquer the throne as proof of power of Christ and the superiority of the Christian religion. Turn the page. Some have considered Constantine's conversion a purely political maneuver. And I want, I want to point this out. I want to pause on this for a second. Whenever you have a large population under, in an empire, all right, and when you have the, you know, sort of the, the, the support of the masses, support of the mob, which at the time were Christians, it could serve political uh, gain, right, when you've got their support. So it's argued sometimes that Constantine was just a, was, this was a political ploy, all right? I, I don't know that it was, and I'll, I'll share my point of view here coming up shortly. But let's look at the negative side first. There was plenty of paganism that was remaining in Rome, plenty. It was rampant. Constantine conspired, he even murdered, he even retained his title, Pontifus Maximus, which was the title given to the sort of the divine ruler of Rome. He was appointed, you know, by, um, you know, by God, supposedly. Pontif- Pontifus Maximus as head of the state of that religious cult. So he retains that. Some believe it's to sort of be a, a political mediation between those who oppose Christianity and then, of course, his own personal life and his own personal policy that was um, sympathetic toward Christians This is kind of a merger of those two ideas. So he adopts sort of a Roman um, compromise and a Christian compromise. Well, which one wins out? Let's look at this. A purely political conversion is hard to maintain in the light of his public and private actions as he openly favored Christians and Christian ministers. He called for a halt to the battles of gladiators as punishment for crimes. And in 321, he made Sunday a public holiday. Wouldn't that be nice? Thanks to his generosity, magnificent church buildings arose, and evidence of his support, which are evidence of support of his Christianity. Moreover, Constantine made no secret of his Christian convictions. This is where I think, and this is kind of where I stand, um, that, that he was a believer. You make your own decision here. Um, but here's where I think. He had his sons and his daughters brought up, a Christian, uh, up as Christians, and he led a Christian family life. I think what you do in the home is a good reflection of what you truly believe. When the doors are closed and the discussions you have and what you do and just biblically what we understand, um, I think that's where uh, Christianity is most effectively furthered. Constantine moved the capital also out of Rome. Here's another reason why. Moves it closer to the east. He moves it to the city of Byzantium, and that's why I have the map up here. Byzantium, what became Constantinople under Constantine's rule, and then later on Istanbul when the Turks took it back. Um, He moves it east, and it stays there for a really long time. Constantinople was known as Constantinople for exactly 1,600 years. It's really interesting. On its 1,600th year birthday, the Turks finally rename it Istanbul. They rename it an Islamic name. Constantine's decree that Christianity be the official religion of his empire, though, soon gave way to politically ambitious individuals 
who were religiously disinterested, producing a shallowness and a permeation of pagan superstitions along, the with, along with the worst of all here, the misuse of religion for political purposes. Eventually, power corrupts. Eventually, the political, individual, sinful ambitions of men take over, and that's what happened. Constantine's decree... Um, sorry, the, the, the decree eventually gives way to shallowness. So let's look at this. How does church then rise to power? Okay, so sometime during Constant, or Constantine, Constantine's rule, the church becomes the powerful institution of the time. Well, by 380, rewards for Christians had turned to penalties for non-Christians. That's a problem. When... when it starts to become dictated from not just the pulpit, but from the palace, people are going to revolt. We're going to see issues here coming up. So by 380, the, the rewards or the favoritism toward Christians turns to penalties for non-Christians. In that year, Theodosius made uh, believers in Christianity a matter of imperial command. And here's what he writes. It is our will, and I want you to note, this is taken verbatim here from his own personal writings, and I want you to note the capitalization of the pronouns here, of the plural pronouns, our. Do you notice anything there? It's capitalized. And this really dives into the thought process of, of Theodosius and some imperial leaders who followed, confusing their own will with the will of God here. It is our will that all the peoples we rule shall practice that religion which the divine Peter, the apostle, transmitted to the Romans. Do you see any undertones here? you see what's about to become? Any ideas? The Catholic Church. The Peter, the apostle, transmitted to the Romans. We, capital we, shall believe in the single deity of the Father. Now, I like this part if it just stopped here. The single deity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, under the concept, that equal magi- or under the concept equal majesty and of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule shall embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we adjudge demented and insane shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches and they shall be smitten, first by divine vengeance and secondly by the retribution of our, capital O, own initiative, which we, capital We, shall assume in accordance with the divine judgment. They took it upon themselves to purify the land of any heretical, what they deemed as heretical beliefs, anything contrary to Christian doctrine, which their own doctrine was bad, and so they carry out judgment on those that would disagree. Not so good. Theodosius confused his own will for the will of God, which became a connection implicit to the Christian empire. And to this day, we see the division of Eastern and Western Christianity, and it really arose and began right here. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, you, you see the founding fathers of our nation see that as Oh, I'm gonna get there, I can't wait. You see that? Yep, so I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna really hammer this. 
Um, our founding fathers, and I've studied this, I've written papers on this. Um, I actually, actually had one published my senior year. Um, our, our founding fathers are a product of Greco-Roman culture. They, they were, there's some that you could argue might have been believers, but their, their theory and their political theory is not founded in Christianity. I want to be very clear on that. Um, and here's, and I'll just give you a few. I'll just give you a few here. Look at the preamble to the Constitution, which includes what are called certain inalienable rights. And, and I want to ask you as believers, what rights do we have? Where is power and authority given? Only by whom? By God. What right do I have? I, I have the right to be judged is what I have, as a sinful. And, and what is that? Uh, so we'll get there, and I'm, I'm going to really hammer on this. The, the, the scriptures that we have here are what explain, apart from grace, what right do we have? I, I could have easily been born in Afghanistan. I could have easily been born in India or China, or wherever. Um, it, is, it is by God's grace that I'm, I'm here, thankfully. And it is also by God's grace that you and I are called to Christ. But we do not have rights. Uh, what, what, what rights do we really have apart from what Christ, and I, I know I'm treading hard here, um, but the philosophy, the, the stuff that sits behind our preamble and, and what we have in the Constitution is not biblical. Um, the pursuit of happiness, you know, is, is a really, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that nowhere in Scripture does God say, hey, man, everything's going to be hunky-dory and happy. I'm pretty sure James says, whenever you consider, whenever you reach trials, tribulation, whatever, I'm, I'm getting preachy here, I want to get back to this. We're going to hammer on this a little bit. Jefferson, I've read Federalist Papers. You've probably read it. I've read a lot of the writings. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison wrote against this idea. Um, and I would encourage you to do it too. Um, I'm not, um, first and foremost, um, first and foremost, all power is, is, is given by, by God. Well, were a lot of our founding fathers Freemasons? A lot were. Um, actually, only if it, there, there were some, and they had a pretty large influence. Um, and you can study that cult as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of wacky stuff that happens there. The, the point is this, it, and, and I'll, I'll just summarize this very, very quickly. Um, our, our founding fathers came here for religious freedom, and you know this. Um, they came here to, to allow whatever religion to be practiced. There are bits and pieces of morality and Christian ideals that are in, um, in our Bill of Rights and in our, our Constitution. Um, the idea that, uh, that you know, morality should even be legislated. Um, however, um, most of it is taken from philosophy and ideas of, of absolute depraved minds. Absolute, you know, well, we can go back to 
John Locke and earlier who gets a lot of his uh, philosophy and political philosophy from Greco-Roman philosophy um, that was, you know, encouraged the practice of homosexuality and encouraged the practice of, of um, incest and, you know, just other things. It, it takes its roots in some really bad stuff. <clears throat> All right. Going back here to Constantine, because this is related. You got a guy here who tries to install Christianity and does so successfully for a while, but then eventually others around him to become in his cabinet, to become a minister in his, or a power in, in his empire. Uh, you had to be Christian. And so to rise through the ranks, you know, was your ambition truly, purely for religion and for the sake of Christianity, or was it to achieve you know, political ambition and political gain. Well, that's the problem. Uh, Theodosius eventually mandates it. Um, and, and I want to tell you here, this is just, this, I, I think this is just uh, poetic. So what happens here is Theodosius mandates uh, Christianity here. He confuses his own will for the will of God. And in the West, farther from imperial co uh, courts, some churchmen dared to challenge the demigod. And what I mean here by the demigod is that is now the emperor of, the, of, of Byzantine is now appointed by God, and now he's to judge for God, and he takes on a role that exceeds his political seat. And uh, thankfully, though, there are some who challenge that. Ambrose, bishop of Milan... Uh, not too far, Milan, a city in modern Italy, still there, uh, not too far from Rome, was one who challenged Theodosius. In 390, at a game event, uh, a charioteer in a Greek city was accused of homosexual practices. It's not clear that this was a, a founded um, accusation, if he really was practicing homosexuality or not, um, but... He was accused, and when the governor accuses you, you get thrown in prison, and he did not account, though, for the reaction of the people. So what happens here, people love this. He was a sports hero, is basically what he was. He was the Michael Jordan of the times, to put it into perspective. The people didn't like this, so they revolted. And uh, the people asked for the charioteer, charioteer's freedom, but the governor refused, and so people rose in arms, murdered the governor, and also then freed their hero. Can't make this stuff up. Theodosius was enraged. So some 700 miles away in Constantinople, Theodosius is enraged. He ordered that the people be punished. So what happens here is on their next race or on a following race in the circus in Thessalonica, he closes the gates orders his soldiers to surround and station at all the entrances, and then murders over 7,000 people attending this race. That's a problem. The Bishop of Ambrose spoke out by writing a letter to Theodosius accusing him of, of crime and then charging him to repent. Ambrose refused the emperor communion until he confessed. Fearing excommunication, finally in front of a crowded congregation, some months later, Theodosius repented. 
He did so on several other occasions until once on Christmas Day, Ambrose gives him the sacrament. Today, historian uh, Bamber Gascoigne points out in the Milan church, which is still named after Ambrose, by the way, named St. Ambrose, the services are Roman Catholic, recognizably different from the form of, early, of worship associated with Byzant- Byzantine emperors, which we know as Greek Orthodox. So we see a split here that this is as a result of this. Both Orthodox means correct, Catholic means universal. But what happens here is, is not what the original Catholic nor Orthodox teachers and, uh, and church fathers wanted. We might actually refer to them as Greek Catholic and Roman Orthodox. It was, it was interchangeable. Both become pretty messed up. It's just a case, a case here, really, of each side East fighting West, claiming to have the right form of Christianity. Really, neither are right. In their contrasting ideas toward Christian empires, though, however, we have a foreshadow of their diverging destinies. I'm going to finish up on this page. So as a result of really what were some personal conflicts, some personal issues, we have major councils, some of these helped clear up some bad doctrines. Some of these made it worse. And I'm just going to list them. And, I, and we don't have time, just for time's sake, we don't have time to go into all these. Um, if you're so inclined, I can send you some stuff on this. But there are four major church councils in this time period that happened within, um, within the empirical Christian age. And, and their goal was to establish the boundaries of truth. And what I, what I want to point out is what I mentioned earlier here. There was a major attack on who is Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he fully God? Is he not? Is he, um, you know, is he supernatural or not? Is he man or not? Um, is he God and man or not? And um, so in the first council here, Uh, the statement came from this, that Christ is fully divine. And in this, they did not separate the humanity from the deity. It was just Christ is fully divine. And this happens at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Then another council happens some roughly, you know, 50 years later. Christ is fully human. Well, you see the pendulum swinging the other way. He's fully deity, he's fully divine, but now he's also fully human. Is he one? Is he other? So in 431, a council of Ephesus happens, and they determine that Christ is a unified person. Um, in other words, and, they, and I want you to notice this here, unified person. So this was the emphasis on the humanity over the deity, um, but that he's both. And then you have Christ as human and divine in one person at the Council of Cal, uh, Caldus, Caldus, Chalcedon, thank you, Chalcedon, in 451, so 20 years later. So the debate rages on here for over 200 years. It's still raging on, quite frankly, in some circles. But each council attempted to deal with a major heresy that had attached to the deity of Christ. Uh, some of this, some of these undertones are still taken up today in more liberal, postmodern views um, where churches have adopted 
not sound doctrine on this and do not teach correctly on the hypostatic union. You have a lot of mysticism and some weird things that get uh, introduced as a result of uh, the deviation from uh, Christ being fully God, fully man uh, in one person. Uh, whatever motives, though, for adopting the Christian faith, the result was a decline in Christian commitment and the horizon of heretical offshoots, such as the monastic movement, derived from an Egyptian named Anthony, whom many regard as the first month, uh, monk. Uh, let me just define this first of all. The monastic movement was an attempt to shut out outside distractions, all right? Uh, um, in other words, uh, take the asceticism of the world, the distractions of the world, the, the sinful pleasures of the world, the, the things that would distract us from, um, uh, from our own uh, Christian walk and isolate yourself in, you know, even in uninhabitable areas, in remote areas, and just, uh, just focus on, you know, on the word. Well, the problem is that, uh, and James also makes this really clear, that the battle of sin is fought where? in the mind, it's in our members, it's, in, it's within ourselves. This is the idea even of total depravity. So it doesn't matter where we go, where we hide. Jonah was in the belly of a whale. I'm pretty sure he was isolated pretty well and the battle raged in his mind. Um, and so monasticism doesn't work. Anyways, Anthony is really regarded as the first monk um, and uh, he really sparks a rise of this monastic movement. Temptations of the outer world were replaced simply by the temptations of the inner world. Pride, rivalry, and eccentricity, just to name a few. Many of the monks in Egypt and Syria went to extremes in enduring hardships. This is where you started to see them punish themselves and wear bits of clothing around members of their body that, that, that were just disgusting, and it doesn't work. I mean, your, your mind is not... Um, immune from sin even when you isolate yourself. I thought this is interesting. Some of you guys will like this. Some ate nothing but grass. Seriously? While others lived in trees. Come on. Still others refused to wash. Um, I try to shower every day. We see the rise of Monks as hermits, and I want this is interesting too. Trace the word hermit, it actually comes from a Greek word desert, which reminded these monks of what they thought was emulating as John the Baptist. And John, you know, again, here's just, just an exaggeration of the forerunner of Christ, um, who ate locusts and honey and lived in the desert and wore, you know, camel skins and stuff like that. So, here again, you see just blown out of proportion um, a biblical truth taken to um, an exaggerated sinful practice. Christians begin singing praises of self-denial instead of the grace of God. Instead of sound doctrinal teaching, they start singing about self-denial, especially of celibacy. And eventually when you go down that path, you have the renunciation of marriage and how many today have forgotten the truth that it is not good for a man to be alone and we see the malpractice in the priesthood of 
and some of the things that that has led to. I don't need to go down that road. I think you know what I'm talking about. The rest of the time period is marked by reactions to empirical, heretical policies and mandates. Each time a reaction occurs where an, eagerly or where an early church figure, sometimes in the form of a bishop or a monk, this is the good news though, renounces the heresy and works to preserve the actual orthodox teachings of Christ and his disciples. This trend continues and gains momentum into the next time periods in the Christian Middle Ages when we see a shift of power from the Roman Empire to eventually Europe and then to eventually the popes when Innocent III decides, I'm the supreme ruler of Europe. So we're going to get there. Next time, next week, we'll look at the Christian Middle Ages, also known as the Dark Ages. This is the age of the dingy, cold monasteries and candlelit scribes. And I will tell you, though, there's some good things that come out of this. You have Jerome, um, who was a dedicated monk, um, I think, in Egypt or Syria. I don't remember. I'll, I'll study this week to remind myself. But Jerome... Um, is the first uh, monk to uh, translate scripture from Greek to Latin, uh, which is an important step. Um, eventually makes its way into and across Europe, which is also very important for most of us. Um, it's 9.54. I'll end here. I'll close in prayer. Um, and I'm excited to come back to, to the earlier discussion that Brian asking the question, um, you know, it's about our forefathers, but I, I will, I'm going to chart it out. I've actually already started this. I, I, want, I want us to be able to see where do we get our political um, philosophy. It's nothing more than that. Uh, our political philosophy, where, is it tra where does it get its roots and where does it, you know, stand today? Um, and, and that'll help. Um, but before we get there, man, we're going to hit the Reformation. We're going to hit Renaissance. It's going to be a lot better stuff, a lot more stuff. Anyways, let's close in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your preservation. We thank you for your immutable nature, your unchangeable nature, that you were the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And on that bedrock, on that foundation, as uh, David calls you, the bulwark, a rock, my fortress, on that is where we stand. For the believer, we are saved from this heretical um, and false teaching of the world, the world system, the world attitude, and in Christ we stand. Lord, preserve our minds, preserve our hearts, help us to remain steadfast and movable, always abounding in your work. And we are so grateful for the work of Christ. And this morning we look forward to singing praises and celebrating his work. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.